This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This bombing was a reminder of the destructive power that an individual or a small group can muster and the need for continuing vigilance across the board. This reptilian theory, uh, which uh, basically says that there are individuals on planet Earth that are lizards sent here to do harm. I have now been vaccinated, as Joe likes to say. There's a big difference between the vaccine and vaccinations. I want to encourage everyone to get the vaccine. Literally, this is about saving lives. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. You know the early work of Spinal Tap? I'm talking about way before the big hits like Big Bottom, Swallow My Love, Nerve Damage, Give Me Some Money, and Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You Tonight. Okay, in 1968, Spinal Tap were a very different group, and they introduced this sweet, folky number called Listen to the Flower People. Uh, Listen to the is in parentheses. Listen to the Flower People, and it went like this. Actually, Melissa, can you help me out? such an awesome song. I'm sorry, I have to wipe a tear from my eye. Well, anyway, today, as we bring Trumpcast to a sweet, folksy landing, we're going to listen to what the lizard people say. Listen. Yes, that's right. Trumpcast superstar Molly McHugh is joining us at Trumpcast to make sense not just of the terrifying Russian solar winds attack, but the lizard people. Now, remember, the Russian solar winds attack has left our government's digital infrastructure bugged as if by teeming termites. But termites that are spying on our biggest agencies and can't be got out for decades. But then there are also the lizard people that haunt the dreams of the people who also panic about 5G, Bill Gates aliens, George Soros, and of course, the formidable kitchen sink where the cabal of Hillary Clinton assassins talks through the faucets. With the presumed Nashville suicide bomber Anthony Warner in the news for his alleged belief in dangerous, you got it, lizard people and the almighty 5G, it's time to review with Molly what's up with American minds that seem fried by the internet and also in some cases driven to violence toward governors, the Hoover Dam, and AT&T. This show is about assessing the damage done in Trump times to American brains by Russians and by the American internet and how we might get our sanity back. Molly McHugh is the cyber warfare expert and author of the highly influential newsletter Great Power at greatpower.net. If you're not subscribing already, it's one of the best subscriptions you can get to kick off 2021. Greatpower.net. Molly, welcome back to Trumpcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. You know, you're one of my favorite guests and general hourly interlocutors. Well, I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. 
as I guzzle my 95th cup of coffee today. Okay, good. Well, I'm right there with you, especially because we have some um, kind of trippy topics. So it's good that we're in altered caffeinated states to talk about them. And those trippy <laughs> topics are one, the solar winds hack and its consequences going forward. Yep. And two, the lizard people and the Nashville suicide bomber. So let's start with solar winds. Is that what the name people are giving to that that hack? You know, I don't know that there's a unified consensus yet on mm. what the name is going to be because there's like all the technical terms that are be it's called this. It's called I think sunburst is the name they're giving to the specific like hack, but I whatever. It doesn't matter. SolarWinds was the software platform used as the vehicle for this. So I think that's the thing that matters most to how we discuss it. Yes. All right. So what is it? Just top line, what is it? Because, man, there are a lot of things you could miss right now, like that are going on in in our benighted republic. Yeah. So about a month ago, there was this sort of, uh, you know, an outside security company, um, FireEye, which has been sort of really key to exposing a bunch of Russian and Iranian and other big sort of hacks that have been documented over the past five years or so, uh, sort of came out and said, hey, there's this giant, massive, sweeping hacking thing that's happened using the update platform, so a supply chain attack, essentially, for this big piece of software, SolarWinds, that's used as like a management and sort of the security and observation software for, for uh, different things. So essentially what they're saying is somebody figured out how to hack the software that you're using to make your system more secure. And which is, you know, very Russian in its, <laughs> in its, yeah, in yeah, its yeah. construct and design. And uh, so at first there was no attribution given the attribution has still has, has now been sort of confirmed as Russia uh, as a unit linked to as the SVR, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service. I think the thing that's new and unique about this, and you'll hear a lot of if you're on Twitter, there's a ton of what about is, oh, the U.S. does this, too. And it is, in fact, true that many nation states and non-state actors do, in fact, infiltrate systems to, you know, observe and collect intelligence and other information. Um, what's different about this one is just the scope and scale of it. It's just super indiscriminate, very widespread. There's at least 18,000 sort of agencies and companies um, that have been compromised by this. And what that means, for the most part, is that you know, a lot of people have the the compromised uh, code sort of in their systems, but Russian uh, intelligence actors have probably only, you know, accessed that hack for a specific number, particularly U.S. government agencies that happen to have mm -hmm. this stuff in their systems. So that it just sort of creates this massive vulnerability that um, nobody really knows the extent of it yet. Nobody really knows what was compromised or exfiltrated yet. Mm -hmm. um, and fixing it is actually incredibly difficult. It's the kind of thing that normally what good good tech repair people would say as they parachute in to save you is just like burn your system down and build a new one. Like just take mm -hmm. all the compromised stuff out, reinstall everything from factory settings and start over, which obviously 18,000 companies are not going to do. So, I think a lot of people Why not? Why not though? It's really expensive and time intensive. I mean, if there's like asbestos and black mold and termites then, yeah, but it's the same yeah. thing as like with home renovation when somebody tells okay. you, hey, you have asbestos in your ceiling, but as long as you just leave it there and don't touch it, probably it won't actually hurt you. Okay. Uh, or you can do this massive $200,000, you know, uh, removal process that will require you to live somewhere else for six months. You're right. going to pick the let's just leave it alone option. 
And it's a, for, for a lot of these companies, it will seem like that. They'll try to figure out if their systems have been accessed. If they haven't, they'll put the patch on. They'll hope for the best. But that yeah. doesn't mean that, um, that you know, whatever. The, it doesn't mean that, that additional access points have not been created by this uh, wow. malware, that there aren't other ways into the systems. Um, there's new information that's come out that said it's this is not just solar winds. It came through other means as well. So... I mean, this is really broad in scope, and I think the problem is just trying to figure out what the parameters of it really are is massive. This has compromised at least, uh, you know, DHS, Department of Agriculture, uh, some parts of DOD, I think, Treasury, Commerce, a couple other U.S. government agencies. Um, I'm sure that list will grow, but really, like, nobody knows what it means yet. So just yet. kind of really remote out, really remote outposts that don't, you know, affect much. Um, not, in not at life. all. Like, um, what does the <laughs> Treasury Department matter? Yeah. We've talked a lot on this show. You and I have talked a lot about you on your um, newsletter, which is called Great Power, have talked about the Kremlin's ends here. And if we're at coming down, and that's why I really wanted you on this show during its denouement, is you and I have talked a lot about what the Kremlin's ends have been with this, you know, Trump operation and the operation destroy American minds or whatever it is, and destroy our socius. And we know that, you know, Putin has imperialist ambitions that he wants to continue to expand and maybe rebuild the Soviet empire. But this seems like a particular play in the Russian move and also a use of Trump. I mean, is there a way that SolarWinds could not have been conducted with another president? Has Trump been looking the other way? Are there ways that he issued some invitation? Is that what, that what was whispered at Helsinki? And do they now have some like measurable control of these government agencies? Uh, you know, is this the the final success? You know, whatever those that movie is where they like hoist the Japanese flag over uh, <laughs> over uh, Rockefeller Center. Is this the moment where they hoist the the hammer and sickle over Washington D.C.? You know, it's a, it's an interesting question, and I think um, you know, thanks thanks for plugging my newsletter, GreatPower.us, and I actually have two pieces coming out looking at kind of the sweeping decade of Russian success in this space. And then the prescriptive stuff for what a new administration really needs to focus on. And I think that's really, for me, what this hack is, is just the capstone on 13 years of the Kremlin doing whatever it wants. And nobody really finding a way to stop them or being very serious about stopping them. And it started very much with, you know, Putin sort of announcing in 2007, like, a rushes back. We're no longer focused on internal weakness. Like we're back out to screw up the world. Nobody really listened. Then there was the massive state cyber attack against Estonia in 2007. In 2008, you have the Russian invasion of Georgia. Onward from there, and uh, to, to Ukraine and Crimea and Syria, and a series of other actions that the Russians have been engaged in, showing sort of this new and expansive intent in the world. And it's really easy to focus on just those wars, right? Like just what Russia has done to realign the Middle East and to screw up Ukraine and to keep control uh, or to try to keep control in its immediate near abroad. But this whole system of measures, including cyber uh, hacking and cyber attacks, information warfare, economic warfare, their, their construction of compatriot networks and finding useful idiots in various spaces to help them with their strategic goals, 
So all the things that we count as sort of this gray zone activity below a threshold of conflict, of open conflict, Russia has invested a ton of time, a ton of resources in figuring out how to use this space effectively in ways that we are slow to see, slow to respond to, and or choose not to respond to. In the case of this particular hack, you know, it seems to be, and I would not in any way say that this is the final sort of assessment of this, it seems to be intelligence gathering. So this was about infiltrating systems, figuring out what's going on. For now, as far as we can tell, and because this is the SVR and not one of the other groups, uh, it seems to be more about, again, sort of gaining intelligence on how do we influence decision-making in Washington? Who are the people we can target? What does all this mean to us? Um, the Russians are very good at this. And, and the piece that they're... It's not just that they're good at, at acquiring information through whatever means, um, but it's also that they still view human intelligence as incredibly important. So they don't just like take this stuff out of the system and then put it into a database and then look at it. They then operationalize it into the human domain, send people out to specific targets to sort of you know uh, influence decision-making, assess what's going on, and how do we use this information to change how things are being done, to find new advocates for our stuff. And they're just really good at it. And and everybody sort of says, no, 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 it's all overblown. Like, it's all magical, hoobie-joobies. But, like, <laughs> uh, if you actually look at what the Kremlin's strategic objectives are and what they've achieved in the past decade, it's very significant. And the erosion of certainty in Europe and in the United States and in the West and beyond about what needs to be done about the Kremlin instead of just normalizing what they do and finding ways to move forward and taking all the dirty money and thinking that it's fine mm -hmm. is really significant. And we are very far behind in understanding how this is a threat. And I think as we look forward to a new administration and how the Trump administration has tried to pivot away from having to talk about Russia at all mm -hmm. has been waving the giant China banners, you know, China's the great threat, China's the threat that we need to focus on. And I think the thing that we need to stay so focused on is China learns from Russia. China sees what Russia has gotten away with. They are mm -hmm. much more cautious and deliberate and have vast, vast resources in ways that Russia does not mm -hmm. um, to put behind all these things. And they're learning from all of it and operationalizing it the same way. And we'll do it much better and much smarter. So if we have not addressed how Russia has achieved this, why it is important and what we need to actually do about it, we will not succeed on China. And I think it's just so important mm. to stay focused on this as we move forward. So I think the Trump administration was like a specific weakness in that President Trump and many of the people around him found any reason not to talk about Russia as a threat, mm -hmm. um, to focus on other things. It's Iran, it's China, it's guys in the basement, it's whatever. And I think that really does speak to, at the very least, a level of corruption, I think probably something much more. But this administration was particularly weak on this necessary focus and political will needed to counter the Kremlin. But that was born out of previous years of really bad Russia policy. And I think the thing we need to understand looking forward is not to say Trump didn't suck. He absolutely did. But the problem with U.S.-Russia policy is not Trump, it's Russia. And the fact mm -hmm. that we do not currently properly assess the Russian mindset, how it operates, how it will target us, and what we need to do about it. And we just need to approach this in an entirely different way.
You've written a lot about how the, um, and I persuasively, about how the Guccifer and Cozy and Fancy Bear attacks on the DNC and then the subsequent revelations of what they found by WikiLeaks and the New York Times in collaboration with WikiLeaks is much less important than the larger hack on what the Oxford Internet Institute that you introduced me to calls hacking humans. The huge, huge project via social media and other means and use of useful idiots to completely remake the American kind of polity and conversation and way of thinking about our neighbors and way of dividing us and even introducing the idea that we're divided and and divided along race lines. Of course, always they've always exploited American racism. The Russians have, but gender lines and age lines, you know, and bringing back other ways of slicing and dicing us, including just old haunted ideas of, you know, who's a socialist and who's a, I don't know, all kinds of things that you just thought had disappeared in mid-century. And, you know, kindling a gender war can't have been top of mind that that would come out. And it certainly has. And, you know, even up to and including Me Too with some Russians, we, I think, talked about this, that uh, Navalny had discovered that there were pro-Weinstein kind of girls in Red Square you know, Russians for Weinstein or whatever. I mean, those are pretty intense. And sometimes I think when people look around and think this is not America, that's because it's not. You know, that's because like we've internalized this very buggy kind of ideas, software. Like it's it's as though the solar winds attack happened to American brains. And I think you've written so persuasively about that. But that's the other thing that has disabled us in really thinking about Russia, that in a weird way, because of this, you know, because of the elegance of the social media hacks and stuff, you end up having people on left and right say, well, this is Russophobia, you know, if you say that this is, you know, actually my kinship with Russian style socialism or my Soviet style socialism or my acceptance of Russian mafia tactics to say that those things have been planted in me. It's just Russophobia paranoia. So what are going to be the lasting consequences of that set of hacks in addition to the solar winds? <sighs> it's such a complicated area. And in particular, because what everybody wants and partially media and researchers and all of us who work in this area have sort of contributed to this sort of stupid forensic evidence required mentality on all of this mm -hmm. stuff. It, it's kind of like hacking. Everybody wants to see the attribution, like this particular mm -hmm. information stream came directly from the Kremlin and it's because mm -hmm. of them that X and none of it is clean and neat like that mm -hmm. in the information domain. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously what Russian actors, what Soviet actors have always been really good at is psychology. And they just invest mm -hmm. way more resources into training people in the space than the rest of us do. And way more resources into creating these sort of like, you know, agencies and things that are distractions that we look at that sort of distract away from the main core pieces of work. And we all chase those rabbits down different holes and sort of miss the point a lot of the time. And I think it's so hard to look at the information domain and say any particular conspiracy stream or information stream comes directly from Russia. There's a few where you can do that, mm -hmm. but more so what they're good at is just sitting in systems, looking at our stuff, being like, hey, this is something that we could use to exploit divides, drive people crazy, and then picking these things up, developing them, amplifying them. 
in ways that are incredibly damaging and corrosive in the United States. And they understand how they spent a lot of time figuring out how algorithms work, you know, how you can micro-target things to different groups and people. None of this is rocket science. If you can sell a vitamin with it, you can sell an idea with it. Mm-hmm. And they're just re- they're really good at doing this. I think in the Soviet period, the intelligence efforts, particularly the psychological operations, were really hampered by the fact that they were trying to promote this ideological cause, right? This yeah, yeah. great communist unity of brotherhood or whatever bullshit. And it was a real you know, it, it kind of hollowed out real fast and everybody yeah. saw it and it was real hard to sell it and it sucked. And I think even they got bored of it after a while. Uh, <laughs> and they were really good at getting, you know, various lefties to sort of take this bait and be like, yes, communist brotherhood. And everybody mm-hmm. else was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go over here and eat my McDonald's. And um, <laughs> they don't have that roadblock anymore. And what they've really embraced in the post-Soviet period, particularly under Putin, with the rise of this generation of KGB men to take over the country, many of whom were involved in illegal programs, many of whom were involved in the infiltration of Democratic and other groups, um, is understanding how you get into a group, reflect its own thinking, and then just twist it and subvert it in ways that are really effective. Mm. And so I think there's been so much more investment in this, in the Kremlin sort of tactically using divides and narratives in different places to really accelerate fracture within societies, whether Mm -hmm. it be US, European, whatever, in ways that we just don't accept because it doesn't seem to make sense, right? Like, why on earth would the Kremlin which depends on, you know, oil revenue to survive in many respects, fund and work with and amplify green narratives about Mm anti-fracking and all this other stuff. And yes, it sort of also relates to their economic interests, but it also just like digs into divides in societies. In Europe, the green, like the support of the green movement has been really, really uh, effective at creating social divisions between generations in particular, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, so far that like the far left and the far right in Europe are really not that far apart. And, and in ways you see this happening in the U.S. right now. But so there's just there's all these things where very tactically on a very narrow line of divisive commentary, Russia will get in and figure out ways to push and amplify and exploit these things, mm-hmm. even though it clashes with something else that they're doing. Right. It's, it's this exact mm. this exact example we saw in sort of the Facebook ads, quote unquote, crap that happened during 2016, where they literally sponsored two separate political rallies facing off against each other at the same time because they right. could. And, that's yeah. a, and I think that is such an important example of just they do not want a group, a, a political actor, a thing to, to be the victor in this information narrative. Mm. They mm. just want to create the conflict and they'll push anything that they think will push people toward a conflict within societies they want to weaken and within their own society truthfully right and and i just think people really still don't get this it makes me think of um you know how like the coronavirus can kill you if your immune system is lowered but also if it revs too high with cytokine storms and it sort of feels like they're just certain words. I've just been reading about J.K. Rowling, but, you know, <laughs> turf, turfs or, or 
you know, particular trans subjects or bathrooms or whatever that can just make us eat ourselves. You know, in addition to this, I've been like a lot of people, um, t- because I'm so bored twiddling my thumbs, taking up chess and playing with my son. And we've been watching Gary Kasparov's masterclass. I know he's your colleague in some of these <laughs> issues. And he uh, likens Putin to, he calls him, he says he's a poker player, not a chess player. But just the dis- Russian descriptions of what's fun about chess are very, and it's what's fun, what gives pleasure is making Europe, and they always are the grandmasters, so only recently kind of un, unseated in that role, is making your opponent squirm. And it's just, that's why it's not as fun playing computers, because computers don't squirm. Right. But it's fun, pleasurable, creative, interesting to make a whole nation squirm. And man, we are squirming right now. When we're not in a full cytokine storm eating our own bodies with debates <laughs> that, uh, you know, that are very exotic, just very exotic. Like when I hadn't even heard of many of the terms of things that we now debate as if they're existential matters, yeah. um, you know, um, it, four years after some of these, um, some of this kind of Russian propaganda and groups that you would see as allied find narcissism of small differences. Then you don't know where they came from and why are these Hills places people are willing to die on, you know, at the time that, you know, we're, we're under attack and, you know, you were very early on there. We are at war and this is how we need to think of it. And four years late, since you wrote that, that article or, or three years since you wrote that article, nobody seems to think we're under attack. We didn't accept your argument that we were under attack or at war and just not even knowing we're at war, except with our neighbors over really arcane issues is, has been part of the, what's been so insulting and defeating to American minds, you know, just hearing like little fragments of propaganda come out of the mouths of, you know, people, you know, I mean, you and I compare notes on yeah. this with with our friend Karen Schwartz on this a lot, that, you know, why is someone who, you know, a lefty woman I know said, out of nowhere, but Obama also wanted NATO to pay more, right? That's the thing on her mind is what aboutism with Obama? I mean, yeah. bizarre, bizarre. How did, and you just want to look them in the eye and say, how did these values and memes get in your mind? Like, just let's just try to, you know, and that has been so upsetting. So, okay, one of the sets of arcana, and this is to transition to our next subject, one of these bits of arcana that just makes your jaw drop is this nexus that the seeming suicide bomber in Nashville was kind of invest, allegedly invested in. We, we see him, little traces that he was invested in, are the combination of 5G, you know, the new advanced network, 5G, lizard people, alien abductions, and possible kind of QAnon-adjacent chunks of language, memes, tropes. What the hell is my question for you? What are these things? And what are the politics and what's going on? Uh, I don't think politics is, is even a piece of it, but, you know, it's really this thing that has happened under QAnon, which, you know, again, is really like just over two years old. So the whole thing is sort of fascinating in its accelerationist uh, tendencies. Yeah. QAnon has really just become 
an all-embracing umbrella system of thought for all other conspiracies. So at this point, it's like, if there is a conspiracy that's loony and vaguely affiliated with the right wing in any aspect, it will somehow become a part of QAnon. So it's, it's almost like a non-distinct thing anymore, which is, uh, it makes it harder to kind of suss the stuff out. But especially as QAnon is sort of floundering for a purpose a bit in this, well, Trump has lost, so everything you have said is bullshit era. Yeah. But all these other conspiracies have really coalesced into seemingly cohesive holes for certain portions of the U.S. population during coronavirus in really troubling ways. Like it, months ago, I wrote a piece for Stand Up Republic for their diffusing disinfo oh, yeah. blog about um, uh, how 5G and the anti-lockdown COVID denier types sort of merged and collided in Idaho in a very small community mm. where my family lives um, in the mountains in Idaho. And, you know, this started very early on in COVID, but this like the merging of anti-vaxxerism with this anti-5G insane conspiracy stuff that sounds like something out of Star Trek, like when all the 5G is turned on, the radiation will dissolve all life on Earth or there's like all these other competing parallel theories of why 5G is terrible. But, but you know, that was being exploited very early on in different sort of conspiracy avenues. But the anti-5G stuff sort of then merged with the anti-COVID lockdown stuff into this like Bill Gates invented COVID to make you inject yourself with a vaccine that will have some RFID tag that will somehow be related to 5G. RF? RFID. So like, you know, it's the the little like chips in your passport that can be read by ambient scanners, essentially, unless you put them in a Faraday envelope. Yes. So, um, but it's like, it's, I mean, none of it makes any sense, but it's all this, like, it starts making sense for people who live in this information space where there's this constant niggling bits of, of conspiracy and doubt about technology about science about uh, you know anything the government is doing is some sort of imposition of control and oppression and somehow covid became the thing that made sense to all of these people like it was all a giant conspiracy from the soros gates clinton you know global nexus of superpower to oppress everyone with whatever and it's i mean there's no way to look at it and say okay i understand why these people are concerned right it's mm-hmm. just bonkers, but it really has gained traction. Right. I mean, I was going to say there's no economic insecurity or some kind of like like liberal humanist explanation for why it's happening. And while nope. shaking her head, just nope. like, nope, there is not. <laughs> nope. But one, the reason that I got interested in Anthony Warner, aside from the obvious reasons, this is the, it pretty much seems like that he was the suicide bomber in Nashville and that he was eager to blast open AT&T more than kind of shed blood. Um, and he gave people a warning with, let's not even talk about the rest of the, the I think you watched downtown. Lost. This is my theory about oh, downtown. Okay. Were you a Lost? Were you a, did you watch Lost? I was a Lost person until the kind of last two or three seasons. Well, um, yeah, because it, yeah. The, it, it, but, you know, the episode where, what's her face, Juliet is like, yeah. And so it's like the da- but downtown is just playing over. I swear, like that's oh, where that came from. Oh, okay, very smart. I could be wrong, but like I'm. That's my guess because this guy is clearly weird. 
Right. And what were we doing? Yeah. Well, like that group 10 years ago was definitely watching Lost and comparing notes on it. And and mm-hmm. I mean, Lost is actually that's brilliant because Lost is actually a total QAnon thing because it ends up a farrago of just like c- conflicting something. And it was very maddening that it didn't resolve. Um, and that's yes. where we are with QAnon 5G lizard people. So but one of the, the reason that I started thinking about him was just as a journalist, you know, we go to th- to what's the reporting on on a suicide bomber. There's a lot of worries about whether he was called a suicide bomber early on or whether there was a story about how he was a troubled individual and um, yep. and and if the story was told differently when the person was Muslim or not. And as I was reading that, I was I mean as I was kind of reading about him, I was thinking about and and this goes to economic anxiety. The liberalist, liberal humanist tendencies of journalists are to go to his neighbors and find out, did he pay his rent on time or whatever, go to people who knew him. And the neighbors invariably said he was nice and quiet. And then his golf coach from when he was in high school, and this guy's in his 60s, so, you know, in the 70s, uh, or yeah, something like that. His golf coach said he was very disciplined. He was kind of a nerd, whatever. Why in the world are they talking to people as though... All we are are like flesh and blood and meat space talking to our neighbors in a segregated <laughs> neighborhood when this is an IT guy, clearly, um, whose avatar is much more important than his kind of personality when he walks down to get the mail and runs into people walking their dogs. And with no idea that, you know, he may... And they went to Facebook and found out, oh, look at that. This IT guy doesn't have a profile under his own name. So surely he's not, quote, on the Internet, right, on Facebook. So but not not going down the road to figure out where is he on what message boards? Who's he interacting with on 8chan? What is he or on other networks I don't even know about? And also how he fell prey to whatever led him to this AT&T bombing, which is, you know, that it's not something that was happening in the real world. Right. And that's, and that was, that was just interesting to think about human dynamics is that like, like it or not, lizard people are part of human dynamics more than the usual things of, do you pay your rent on time and how nice you are on the street? And that I think is a big change is a, is a really big change. Yeah, you know, I'll be very interested to see what more, if anything, we ever get about this guy, like, you know, because his, his devices have obviously been taken. And, and if he has social media accounts, they'll find them. I, so far, nobody seems to have identified any, at least not that I've seen, that they would say are definitely this guy. And that's sort of what we've become dependent on these last few years to suss out people's radicalization and ideology, right? People do terrible things and we immediately look for them on social media and then it's, oh, look, they were posting QAnon or, oh, look, they were into, you know, Anders Breivik from, you know, the crazy uh, Swedish killings or Norwegian killings. And and you can tie them into different radical groups and, and see sort of how they self-radicalized. And when we don't have that, I, then, then it's like, well, what do we know about? I, and I think for all of us, the, the that that care about American radicalization, like how people conducting these types of attacks in the United States are becoming radicalized, the thing that still haunts us is Las Vegas, right? The Las Vegas shooting, mm. and how oh, yeah. maybe this was just some wackadoo guy who decided to bring his forty-eight guns to a big giant hotel and shoot a bunch of people randomly at a concert. Mm. But the the why of that 
we've never learned, right? Mm, like, what mm-hmm. was that really about? Oh, yeah. Did he have an ideology? Was there some manifesto that was never public? Like, none of us know anything about that. And I think there's so many questions about people like that. And so with, I'd be very curious to see what more we learn about this guy who does not seem to have been, you know, overtly propagating his views, at least as far as we know so far, on social media. You know, he wasn't like a big uh, a reposter of content as far as anyone can tell so far. Yeah. So the question of, where was he getting these ideas? How was he engaging in the conspiracy space? You know, was this a much more old school Ted Kaczynski style, Mm. mostly living in his own cabin in the woods, thinking about his own ideas guy than he was sort of in this online space. I have many questions about this, but if what we've seen so far from, you know, the local reporting seems to have been very critical and what we know so far, like the very, very local reporters in Nashville who have been able to find neighbors and whoever who will talk to them, but if he was, in fact, a guy who legitimately believed in the lizard people conspiracies and was going to the woods to hunt the alien lizard people pretending to be humans and believed in the 5G will ruin the Earth slash empower the lizard people uh, mm. conspiracy narratives, I will be very curious to know how he became engaged in those things and then continued to be a normal seeming IT professional in his daily life. Molly McHugh is a cyber warfare expert and author of the newsletter, Great Power. It's at greatpower.net and you should subscribe today. And that's it for today's show and all of our shows for the year 2020. We made it through the year. And while there's uh, still work to be done, to put it mildly, we can do it together. Let's dream about the year ahead on Twitter. I'm at page 88 and the show is at Real Trumpcast. And what better way? to go into the new year than by joining Slate Plus. You'll get to hear all of our episodes, ad-free and bonus episodes, like the unbelievably good one, if I do say so myself, that we just did with Kathy Griffin. It's just $35 for the first year. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan, also engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.